Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for that. I love when people use their gifts and use it well. Thank you guys so much uh, for blessing us here this morning. And, um, you know, it's, it's, the church is made up of people with all kinds of different skills and gifts. And uh, vocals is not one of mine. So I'm glad it is some of uh, other people's. And musically, we love having them. And as always, too, we, we appreciate our tech team making it happen week after week. Well, hey, think of those words we just sang. And... It is such a profound truth when we think about this idea of grace. And and isn't it interesting that grace, the very thing that changes and transforms us, actually can be quite divisive as well. It's this message that is probably the best message we will ever hear in the world, and yet it's one that causes people to either accept or reject Jesus. And that's really what we're going to be looking at here today. We're going to be continuing our series, and we're in the book of John, chapter 7. And we're looking at Jesus and the great divide. I was even thinking of, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln made it famous. There's a statement, he was talking about leadership. He said, good leadership is deciding who it is you're not going to please. Because we know sometimes in leadership, you can't make everyone happy. And sometimes you have to make decisions and statements that some will accept and some will reject. And we see that played out with Jesus. So I want to invite you, uh, we already did our reading today, but I want to invite you to look at John chapter 7. And uh, by the way, if you're a guest with us here today, we're so glad to have you. My name is Ryan, and it's my privilege to serve here as uh, one of the pastors on staff and one of the elders at the church. And I love to be able to teach and be a part of just looking into uh, God's word and how this shapes and changes us. And so for us, we love to every week open up because we believe that there's words in here that matter to all of us, no matter where you're at in your faith journey. So John chapter 7, you're welcome to use. If you'd like to have a hard copy of a Bible, you don't have one, we have some in the tables in the back, and, uh, or you can always use a digital version. But here's, here we are, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to walk you through this passage, and we're going to ask the question that we're going to see that Jesus is making a statement here today that's going to be a very divisive thing. And, and so we're going to kind of look at the different responses to Jesus, and at the end, we're going to have to ask the question, what does that mean for us? If this is truth that we want to interact with, then how do I respond to it, and what will that do for me? So uh, how do I respond to God, uh, just as people had to make that same choice? So let's look at John chapter 7, we're in verse 37. And again, uh, we already heard the reading, but we'll walk through these verses now. It says this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now we want to stop right there. And uh, we like to, as we go through on Sunday mornings, we like to kind of point out things that will be helpful as you read scripture on your own, just to kind of notice what kind of questions should we be asking. But as we look at this, he starts off on the great day of the feast. Again, so there's something about that that should matter. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about all of this has taken place during what's called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, uh, it would be called Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot, uh, which is, basically means shelters. 
And uh, we even built on the stage here two weeks ago one of the shelters that's part of the festival and part of the worship. Now, it's important to know that because this is uh, once a year, this is one of the three feasts that were known as pilgrimage feasts so that if you lived close enough to Jerusalem, um, all the males who were able were supposed to travel to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem. Certainly then all their families would come with and it became a very large uh, celebration year after year. Now, The Feast of Booths was about remembering the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They left their shelter or their home in Egypt where they were in slavery. They were led out into the wilderness where then they wandered, waiting to enter into the promised land. And so this annual festival, they would build these shelters, build these booths, and nowadays, they still will be done in the Jewish faith, but you eat inside of them. You don't, they don't often sleep in them. But in antiquity, they were supposed to sleep and live in these for a week at a time to remember the time when God was with them in the wilderness. And they were reminded of the presence of God. They were reminded of his provision, how he provided miraculously food and then water from a rock and how God sustained them through their season in the wilderness. So every year when they'd celebrate and build these booths, it would remind them of those things. Now, part of the worship, it was a seven-day festival or eight-day festival. And on the last day, they called it the Great Day. And so here we have this part of John chapter 7 is the last day of the festival, the great day. The great day was also known in Hebrew, uh, they call it the Hoshana Rabbah, which means uh, the great uh, save or, or the day of salvation, the great day of salvation. And so it's a day when they would focus in on, okay, what does that, what do we really focus on that? God, we've had all of this celebration um, where we're remembering the time in the wilderness. We had, and it's also a harvest festival, so we're remembering and thanking God for his provision. We're praying for next year's provision, but on the last day, we're going to celebrate and ask God to save us. The great day of salvation. Now, part of that would be uh, of this uh, daily ritual of the worship for this feast, is a priest would go down to what's called the Pool of Shiloh, grab some water in a pitcher, and march up with the people to the temple and pour it out on the temple. Now, on the last day, this ritual had already been done seven times. There's some debate whether they still did the exact same thing on the last day or not, but it's important to have this imagery in your head. And just for those of you who are kind of visual, we like to sometimes painted the picture for you. So here's a a map of um, Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And you can see on the very bottom, it says the pool of Siloam. In Hebrew, that's Shiloach, which means uh, to send. And this is um, a spring of, it's actually a pool that was built the time of Hezekiah. There's a spring of water, the Gihon Spring, that always is flowing even to this day. And they built this inside the city walls to prepare for a siege. So it's actually a really cool archaeological site. Uh, Those of you who traveled to Israel with me, um, we used to live in Israel, and they had just started, in 2004, just discovered more of the archaeology of this site. By the time I lived there a few years later, they were already doing the excavations, and now it's impressive what they've done. Even since the last time, those of you who traveled with me, they've done way more Um, They believe that that pool probably is 70 meters long at the time of Jesus. So think of how big that is. And um, so 
they would go down to that pool, get water, and walk up. You can kind of see a dotted line where they'd walk up that dotted line, um, which was an, a road that went to the temple. And uh, that road is actually being excavated now, too, for the first time since, uh, well, the time of Christ. So it's pretty cool. Um, the next slide will show you just kind of a 3D scale of it. Um, this is from some kid's house at the time of Jesus. They built it and uh, the Legos. And uh, so... Not true. But so the bottom, uh, the arrow is where the pool of Shalom or Shaloah is. And you'd walk up. You can kind of see where the road would go to the temple. And the temple is that large structure. That is the first century temple that Herod the Great built. And we still see the remains of that to this day of the Temple Mount. That's where the Golden Dome of Jerusalem is um, to this day. Um, that was built much later, but um, that Temple Mount was there in the time of Christ. So you can see the pathway that they would take. Now, why do I tell you that? Because part of the, worst, part of the celebration for this feast was the procession to go down and get the water and to walk up. Now, when they did it, they'd get to the top, and the priest would pour out the water. Um, some would have them pour it on one side of the altar, and on the other side, they would pour out like wine or juice, representing a couple things. But as they poured out the water each day, uh, they would recite this verse from Isaiah, and I have it on the screen for you. It says this, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So there's this imagery of, of water, but it's all based on who saves God is the one who saves us. And here where it says, the Lord, the Lord, this is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, Yahweh, the highest name of God. And so they'd recite this and pour out the water. And so it represented a few things. One, it was God sustained us in the wilderness. But it's not just about physical sustaining. It's also about spiritual. Because he's saying, save us, save us. Now, another part of this worship is during this processional, as they walked up the hill, they would recite a section of psalms called the Halal Psalms that they also sang um, during what we know of as um, Palm Sunday, during Passover. And it's Psalm 113 through 118. And I want you to see how the crescendo, the end of these psalms, this section ends. This is what they would be singing and chanting during the feast on the great day. So look at what he says, Psalm 118, verse 25. Please, O Lord, do save us. Please, O Lord, send your prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. So save us, O Lord. So there's salvation. Send us your prosperity is, is a call out to provide for our needs. And blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is language about the Messiah. You will come. We're, we're asking you, and blessed is the Messiah who will come in the name of the Lord to bring us salvation. So these are the songs that are being sung and what is being chanted. Now, go back to the text in John chapter 7. If these are all the things, it's the imagery that they're saying. They're pouring out water and saying, Lord, save us. Lord, bring your, your water of salvation. All of this stuff. And then Jesus stands up on the great day. And what does he say? If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. 
Now, he's not saying like, hey, it's hot out here. We just walked all the way up the hill. I'm selling frozen lemonade. If you're thirsty, come. No. Obviously, there's something deep going on here, right? He's saying the thing you're calling out for, you're calling God, save us. Send your water of salvation, which is the symbolism of your spirit. Save us. Meet our needs. Be there. And Jesus says, oh, are, are you really thirsty? Are you really longing for the salvation of God? Great. Then come to me and drink. I have what you're calling out and waiting for. That's me. Now we read it and we think, oh, that's, that's a cool saying of Jesus. All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. No, but to the Jews who are celebrating and, and reciting these and it's in their mind and he says it, they, they would say, wait, what? What did this guy just say? He just claimed to fulfill the verses we are asking him, God, to fulfill. Essentially, in Hebrew, what he said is, you know who Yahweh is? It's me in flesh. God is here. You want to be saved? Come to me. It was like mic drop moment. So in this moment, Jesus gives an offer. And what's the offer? Two things. One, receive forgiveness. Come to me and drink. In other words, you're looking for salvation. I have that for you. So I will forgive your sins. I will provide everything that you need as it relates to forgiveness, and then receive the Holy Spirit. Now, because he says this, the one who believes in me from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this is language of the Spirit of God flowing from them. Now, John gives a little bit of commentary. And the commentary John gives is he says, because he's relating to, he says this, he says this in reference to the Spirit for everyone who believes because the Spirit had not been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What he means is, until Jesus would be crucified and resurrected and ascend to heaven, that's when Jesus said, I will send my spirit to dwell within those who believe. Now, a couple things. We're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit in a few weeks. But just a few things to know. This doesn't mean the Holy Spirit was somehow being created now. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't exist until this moment. The Holy Spirit exists throughout eternity. We believe in the Trinity, which means Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally existed. Jesus, uh, the Son, was not created when he was born in Bethlehem. The Spirit was not created when Jesus ascended to heaven. They've always existed. But the Spirit did not indwell those who believe. That was a gift that came as Jesus left. He tells us later on in the book of John, when I go, I will send you a helper. And he's talking about, I'll send the Spirit. So the Spirit now will flow from your innermost being. This is the idea of now that you have the Holy Spirit, that that is from within will cleanse you and change you and empower you. So we'll, go back, we'll get back to that in a few weeks. But it's important that we know that the Holy Spirit was not newly created in Christ or when Jesus leaves. He's always existed. Okay, back to the text. So Jesus says, receive forgiveness and receive my spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, after they heard these words, they were saying, this truly is the prophet, meaning they believed that there'd be a prophet who would come in the spirit of another great prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah, saying there has to be a great prophet who will come before 
God's Messiah, who's the anointed one, will come. Others will say, no, this is the Christ. That means the anointed one. This is the Messiah we're waiting for. And others were saying, surely the Christ is not from Galilee, is he? Has the scripture not said that Christ comes from the descendants of David in Bethlehem, from the village where David was? So a dissension occurred in the crowd because of him. This word dissension in Greek is actually where we get our word schism. It means that a schism created something divided them at this moment. Jesus' words created a division among the people. And, and just notice some of the different thoughts that people were saying. The first one is, he is a prophet. This is a really interesting statement because I believe that this is logically inconsistent. It doesn't work to say that he's the prophet. What were prophets for them? Prophets were coming to proclaim truth from God. Now, if you were a prophet, and we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, coming to proclaim truth, and we believed everything you said, yet one of the things you said as a prophet was, I am God who's coming to save you. You either have to believe that person to be true and say, oh, okay, it's not a prophet, it's God in flesh, or the person is a madman. You can't have a good man telling good teaching if he's also saying something that you would reject as, as false and deceptive. C.S. Lewis made that famous argument of Jesus is either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. But he can't be all three. He can't be proclaiming to be Lord and yet also not be Lord. That would make him either a liar or he's a lunatic. He thought he was Lord. This is the same. If we say, oh, he's a great prophet, but I don't believe what he says, then how is he a great prophet? How, how is he, if he's a great prophet proclaiming truth, but you don't accept his truth, then there's something wrong with you or something wrong with him. And we live in a world where maybe even you've said it yourself. I don't know if I accept Jesus, but I, I love his teaching. No, you don't. You can't love Jesus' teaching if you've rejected him because his teaching was, I am God and in me, will get, I can give you and sustain you with all that you need. And apart from me, you can do nothing. He's not a good teacher if you reject him as Lord. His teachings aren't, you don't accept his teachings if he is not Lord. He, you might just think, you know, he says some good things, but then he probably says some really crazy things too. And so you actually, he's not a good teacher if he's not Lord. It's not. It's crazy. Not worth trusting. But they say, so some do that though. Oh, he's, this is truly the prophet. Notice the next response. This is truly the Christ. Some people got it right. Some people said, there's no, the, the teachings that he's had, and we saw earlier in chapter six, the things that he's accomplished, surely this is the Christ. This is the one we're waiting for. This is God in flesh. This is the servant of Israel. This is our Messiah. Yes, that is who he is. Now look at the third response. I love this one. Did you see it? Does this make any sense? Surely the Christ is not from Galilee, is he? They're not, are, are they even dealing with the issue at hand? As I read this, it says that, oh, he's not in Galilee because uh, the Christ comes from Bethlehem. I want to propose something to you here. And I took great comfort in this because sometimes I watch the news or read the news and I don't know if, if you're like me, but it's hard to believe anyone anymore, isn't it? You don't know what to believe. 
Like, who is telling me the truth? We don't know what side is telling you the truth. We don't know, okay, you're telling me this, but is there something more? And now AI makes stuff up for us to, re- believe, to read, right? Not only that, but they create pictures that didn't happen. I'm actually convinced in 10 or 15 years from now, we're gonna think things happened because we'll see these pictures that AI created. And we're gonna like, oh yeah, look, there's a picture of it. It is a time of deception, isn't it? And so we look at that, but guess what? This is not new. This is an age-old trick. Notice what the teachers of the law did. He is a prophet. He is a Christ. Well, Christ doesn't come from Galilee. Was that the point? What are you talking about? They just, they got everyone, oh yeah, that's right. There's no way a Christ could come from Galilee. And they're, they're being deceived. But do you think for a second those religious leaders didn't know where Jesus was born? When we read in Matthew, when it says all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard about this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who people think is the Christ, and this caravan of magi show up, and Herod kills a bunch of babies, and they're saying, oh yeah, there's this baby who's born to these people named Mary and Joseph, and he was born in Bethlehem, he's in the line of David. People think he's the Christ. Do you think those religious leaders forgot that? That's just something you go like, oh, I forgot about that way back then. That had to bug them their whole lives. All of a sudden, he starts teaching and performing miracles, and some of them would say, hey, do you remember way back that one Christmas a long time ago? (laughs) And there's all that stuff that happened, and this is that kid who was born in Bethlehem. Just as Micah says that the baby would be born, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, could it really be him? It can't be him. He's challenging us. That can't, we cannot let this be. So now the crowds are starting to say, we think it's him. And what do they say? Oh, no, no, it can't be. He's from Galilee. They know he's not from Galilee. They know where he was born. But they start throwing seeds of doubt and deception. And there was a schism. There was a divide. Friends, I want you to know, Jesus will divide people. He will. He does, not come, he does not elicit a neutral response. If we come face to face with the real Jesus, we don't actually say, huh, that's interesting. The real Jesus causes us to say either, I'm, I'm with you or I'm against you. In the sense that Jesus can be your homeboy or just some nice little person in your life is just missing the point of who Jesus is. Can he be as close as your homeboy? Yes. (laughs) But if that's all he is, you don't even know who Jesus is. You've missed it. He divides. When we come face to face, we see even in our world now, if we're following Jesus, there's a division between those who do and those who do not. Would you agree? But let me tell you, just like here, those who do not follow Jesus are not your enemy. They're not the problem. We're going to get to that in a minute. He goes on, verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. And then the officers that came to the chief priests and Pharisees, um, these officers were probably officers of the temple courts. They were probably told to go arrest Jesus for them. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests said to the officers, why did you not bring Jesus here? And they answered, never has anyone spoken in this way before. In other words, 
we're not bringing that guy in. <laughs> if he is who he says he is, and he's performing miracles, and we saw some people get healed, and, and we've, we've seen a lot of stuff happen, and he's proclaiming to be Christ, he just said, come to me, I am Yahweh. Uh-uh, you go get him. <laughs> I'm not getting him. We've never heard anyone teach like this before. If he's right, I'm not the ones who are going to arrest him. And so the Pharisees looked at the officers and said, you've not been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in Jesus, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This is called gaslighting. <laughs> no one who actually has a brain would follow him, right? Right? No one who's intelligent, who's thought through things would ever believe in Jesus. What's wrong with you? Are you just one of them? You're just, you know this crowd? The uneducated simpletons? Oh, that's the ones, and they're cursed. That's who you are if you want to follow and believe in Jesus. Again, if you can't deal with the truth, let's just find a rabbit trail and get people distracted. Just put seeds of doubt and deception out there and, and now name-calling and labeling and all of that. Not that anyone does any labeling these days, but it happened back then. Can't believe you'd be like that. Then he, they bust out this, look at even this crowd. They don't know anything. They're accursed. This is um, probably referring to the religious leaders had this um, saying it was just called the people of the land and the people of the land were below them as the commoners so that's probably what you're saying here oh the people of the land they don't know anything and they're accursed now here's kind of a fun I love when scripture goes a few layers deep uh, they're probably referring to the idea of there's blessings and cursing uh, curses for those who followed the Old Testament law of God giving life or, or sustaining them in different ways and, and they could have been referring to that uh, just that literally saying, yeah, our scripture would say that they're cursed because they don't obey and follow God's teachings. But I want you to see this in Galatians chapter 3. Paul picks up on this language, and he says this in, in verse 10 of Galatians 3. He says, all who are under the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and doesn't do them. Now, no one is justified by the law before God. That's evident, for the righteous will live by faith. So Paul's saying, hey, even according to our Old Testament law, you still have to live by faith. But get this. However, the law is not faith. On the contrary, the person who performs the law will live by them. In other words, if you think the law will save you, it's going to bring you blessing and curse. Well, that's what's going to be on you. Now look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So pretty interesting that the Pharisees weren't all that wrong, saying the crowd is accursed. Paul later on says, yeah, that's probably true. But here's the good news. Jesus became the curse of the law. He took your sins and all your shortcomings and he stood in your place and he put himself on a cross. On, and here it says, curses everyone who hangs on a tree or, or wood it actually has there. So on the cross, he becomes the curse for you and for me. Amen. 
So they weren't all that wrong. They just missed the rest of the story. But Jesus was before them saying, oh, here's the rest of the story. You want salvation? It's in me for those of you who are cursed. So we see a few different responses here in this passage. I want to walk through them and, and let you see the three different responses. So the first one we saw to review was misguided ad- admiration. He's a good prophet. He's great. Great prophet. So misguided admiration. We see that in our world today all the time. Love. Jesus is great. We love Jesus. He's so cool. Jesus, yeah, he's a good guy. Misguided admiration. Thank you for admiring him, but you missed the point. The next thing we saw was the response was worship and obedience. From this point on, we see this whole gathering of disciples who are, have been gathering around Jesus and they're learning to worship and respond to him with obedience, the whole New Testament that now the church exists to this day of responding to Christ and it, it elicits a response from us if we proclaim him as our Lord. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, God is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and my obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So we have this, if we respond to the real Jesus, the the response that comes from us is this worship and obedience to say there is rest nowhere else than finding myself in his will and responding. The third response we saw there was that opposition and deception. Let's try to get people off the track. Oh no, he's uh, from Galilee. No one would worship anyone from Galilee. See, we live in a world now, too, where deception is everywhere. And I believe as Christians, there's this divide that happens where just slowly we're seeing, getting seeds of doubt even of your faith. Well, it can't really work this way, right? You're a Christian, but that means if you're a Christian, you must be what? Bigoted, hateful, backwoods, all these labels that are put on us. We've actually had a few people leave the church in the last five years, a couple families, who left, and they left for reasons of this. They told me they were leaving. And in each case, they said, we just don't want to be associated with evangelical Christians. And they said, it's not the music, it's not the way we even apply faith at this church, it's certainly not the fantastic preaching, it's... (laughs) But we're leaving because we don't want people to think we're evangelical Christians. Now, by the way, let me just give a little note here. Evangelical historically has meant people who believe the Bible and trust it and believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he's the way to salvation. So the Bible is true, Jesus is God, and he's our way to be saved. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Now, if you ask 100 people out there what it means to be evangelical, I don't know how many would actually get that. Most of them would probably think it means something about how you vote or what you yell at. And it's unfortunate, and I wish we could redeem and get this word back to what it really means. And let's be honest, a political side has hijacked that beautiful term of what it means to believe the Bible and trust Jesus. And it's unfortunate. But those little seeds of doubt and deception cause someone to say, I don't even want to be a part of the church because now I'm going to be labeled something. 
Do you think that comes just from people who are opposed to Christianity? I don't think so. I don't think people are our enemy. I think the enemy is the enemy. And the enemy is the enemy of God, is Satan himself. It's the spiritual forces of evil in this world who are causing deception and deceit, causing us to question everything that is true in this world. And it's so confusing. People don't even know what to put there. They, in one hand, sorry if you, well, not really. Um, if some will say, I believe in science, and at the same time reject science at the most basic level. Whoa, got quiet. <laughs> But in that, here's the thing. It's because we we don't know what to put our anchor of truth on. And it's going to change today and tomorrow will be something different. And in 15 years from from now, I promise you, we're going to look back at 2023 and we're going to say, oh, we were kind of weird back then, weren't we? But we'll be a whole new version of weird in 15 years from now. Because our truth isn't anchored in anything. So it's going to change with culture. And you know who loves that most? The enemy of God. He wants us to be deceived. He wants us to be confused. And so the great division is when we put our line in the sand and say we trust the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, and that's where we get our truth and where we get our marching orders for life. Now here's the thing, though. Jesus is the great divider between us and culture, but culture is not our enemy. The people in our culture are not our enemy. They're not. They are the very ones that Jesus spread his arms out for and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those very Pharisees who said, oh, how could you possibly be a prophet? You're from Galilee. And they were causing deception and all of that. And Jesus said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to die for you. I'll become the curse for you. As we finish this passage, it says this. Nicodemus, verse 50. The one who came to Jesus before, being one of the Pharisees, said to the rest of them, which, by the way, they said, none of us believe. And Nicodemus was like, oh, well, I kind of do. But anyway. (laughs) So Nicodemus speaks up. He says, our law does not judge a person unless it first hears them and knows what he's doing. He appeals to justice, which is very important in their law. And they answered and said to him, great, isn't it? You're not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures. See that no one comes from Galilee. Forget about what you just said. Oh, you're just one of that. You're backwards too. What's wrong with you? Label. Categorize. Tribalize. Oh, you must be this. It's going to happen to us. The people who do that are not our enemy. They're God's mission. It's his heart. The very people who are labeling us and putting us in corners and saying, oh, you must be a hateful whatever category, all of those things. We look at them with the heart of God and say, oh, God loves you so much. You just need to know Jesus. You can lay, well, I don't care what label you put on me. It doesn't change me. I'm a child of the God, of, of God. I'm, I'm redeemed by Jesus. I'm his, you know, an heir with Christ doesn't matter what you call me because you're wrong about that anyway but you oh you're lost without him and we want you to know jesus so how do we respond to this truth so jesus creates a line in the sand between us and culture but i want to he's a great divider but i also want to give you this 
He's also, for those of us in Christ, the great uniter. The division that people have when they respond to either Jesus as Lord or not should not exist within the family of God. Because when we come to Jesus as our Lord and King, that is the very thing that unites the Jew and the Gentile, the Republicans and the Democrats, the Padres fans and the Dodgers fans. In Christ. Only in Christ. (laughs) And even that's hard, but... He can do all things. <laughs> in Christ, he's the great uniter in this space. So why should we be fighting and bickering with each other about the things that we hold dear that have nothing to do with Scripture? It might be your view of politics. It might be your view of even the music or whatever it might be. Your take on these little minute de- details of faith that are just debates that are fun, they're interesting. But if those things divide us, we miss the point of our Jesus. There's enough division. We don't need it. He is the great uniter in this room. And we have all different perspectives and coming from different backgrounds and have different ways of doing life. But the one thing that when we say we're brothers and sisters of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God is flowing out of your innermost being, that means I'm going to give you a certain level of respect because we are together in this. You with me on that? And I think what the world needs to see more than anything isn't how we're so much different and better and more enlightened than them, but how we can love each other even though we in here are so much different from one another. And when they see that we're united and we go shoulder to shoulder and linked arms together because we know that the world is often deceived and they need Jesus, but when they see us come at them together, they say, I can't find this anywhere else. They can find good music outside of the church. They can find good teaching all over the place. They can find cool kids programs. They can find all of that. Can they find a group of people who loves the community and serves? Yeah, they can find that. But can they find it among people who are super different but love each other and will go to bat for one another and will care for one another and that will also offer forgiveness and grace to the ones who are spitting on us and calling us names and labeling us? And instead of looking at their bumper stickers and putting them in a label and saying, I just kind of want to bump this car just a little bit. (laughs) Which maybe I think sometimes. I drive a big truck, so. (laughs) But to say, oh, Lord, I just want you to reach that person somehow with your spirit. Would you do it? Oh, how powerful is that? On the great day of salvation, when they're worshiping and calling for God to do something, Jesus said, here I am, and started this movement that we still get to be a part of today. I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing one last song. And as we do, I want to just ask you to kind of respond a little bit in your own heart here today. Some of you, maybe you hear these words, and you, uh, maybe you're discouraged, you feel defeated. Maybe you feel the full weight of culture against you. I know some of you, you work in public spaces, maybe your, your, your work environment, maybe you're in the public schools, and you feel like, man, I just am under it all the time, feeling the pressure. Or maybe you watch the news and, and it gets you fired up and you, you just sense this us versus them mentality. And maybe today what Jesus is saying is, how about we change our perspective? And it's not us versus them. Let's start with just me and you. 
And today you need to receive hope that comes from God. You need to know that he is on his throne. You're sons and daughters of God. You're saved by him. And he, he can take care of all, all this other stuff. Which, by the way, this is not new. Culture wars are not new. And so some of you maybe today just need to say, Lord, help me not to see the world as my enemy, the people in the world as my enemy. Let me know that the enemy is the enemy. And maybe today God wants to open your heart a little bit. Maybe for some of you, it's people within your own church, people who see things differently, who worship differently, whatever. Maybe you say, Lord, help me love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe for some of you today, you're here and you've never drunk from the water of Jesus. Do you hear the message? You've thought of him as a good person. He's your homeboy, but he's not your Lord. And maybe today, Jesus is saying, are you tired and thirsty and it's not working? Would you give me a chance and come to me? I want you to just, let's all close our eyes and just take a moment to reflect. And Maybe you're in one of those categories. Maybe you're partially in those. Maybe like me, sometimes you, you wrestle with throughout the week of, Lord, am I significant enough? You just need to hear God tell you again today. Water, water's flowing through you. Living water's the Holy Spirit. That's who's, who you are. You're all you need to be in me. Do you need to hear that today? And we're going to respond with one last song, just lifting up the name of who Jesus is. But before we do that, take a moment and let's just give him some space. And listen to the Holy Spirit. What are the words you need to hear today? Today you're out there and you're saying, I want to, I need to say yes to Jesus. I want to just give you a challenge right now in this place. Would you, in the quietness of your heart, if that's you, you want to say yes to Jesus, pray this prayer with me in the quietness of your heart. Just pray, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I confess that I'm a sinner without you. And I ask you to forgive me for all my sins and be Lord of my life. And if that's you today, all of heaven rejoices over you because you're the one who came to the living water. And I'll invite you at the end of the service. We want to hear from you. We want to walk with you in your journey if that's you. And for all of us now, let's respond our hearts, in our hearts to the truth of who Jesus is based on what he said. Let's sing this last song.